welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for an opportunity to be together and to make new memories in strange ways. We just thank you for your people and just the perseverance that they have, and uh, just super thankful for this fa- church family that we have. And Lord, we just pray that as you met Zechariah in the temple, as we're going to see tonight, we pray that you'd meet us here in this place. We pray that as you blessed Zechariah and Elizabeth in their barrenness, Lord, we pray that you bless us in whatever barrenness we bring here. We pray, Lord, that you would um, bless us deep in our souls, that you bless our families. We pray you bless our labors as we go out into the workplace and or in our homes uh, this week. We pray we'd be a blessing to the community. We pray, Lord, that we'd be a blessing to your church, to your people. We pray that we this would be a time when we'd engage and not withdraw. Lord, we pray that we'd be a blessing to our city and our state and our nation. We pray, Lord, that you would heal our land, Lord, that you would heal it of disease, that you would heal it of divisions. We pray that you would heal it of uh, falsehoods. We pray that you would heal it uh, giving peace and justice. Lord, we pray that you would truly move in our land, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts as we hear your word tonight, that we'd be excited about the promise of your Messiah who has come. We pray, Lord, that you'd make us a people who just naturally and happily commend your son Jesus to all that we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. So we're in our Advent series. We're in a series in Luke, Luke chapter 1 and 2. Um, Advent's our season to prepare our hearts so that the whole Christmas season will be a time of worship. And uh, Josh made these really great Advent guides. If you want to get them online, they're at covegracemenifee.org slash Advent. Each night, what you'll do either on Saturday night or Sunday night with your family is there's a reading, there's some songs, there's a link to listen to some songs and to sing them together, and there's a prayer, and you light a candle. It's a really great way, and if you guys aren't used to doing family worship around your dinner table, this is a great on-ramp for that. You know, it'll, it'll get you guys used to doing it. So please uh, take that up. This Sunday, we're in Luke chapter 1, if you guys want to turn there. We're going to be looking at the promise and birth of John the Baptist. So the first two chapters of Luke are written in an interesting way. It's an overlap of John and Jesus. So you have John's announcement of his birth. Then you have Jesus' announcement of his birth. We're going to look just at John. So we're going to kind of take those two strands, pull out the strand that's John the Baptist, and we're going to look at his announcement of his birth and his birth tonight. First thing to notice here, guys, is that God's faithful people wait. God's faithful people wait. What it means to be God's faithful people is to wait for him. Take a look at verse 5. Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful believers waiting. In verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the order of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people 
were praying outside at the hour of incense. This text says in verse six that they were righteous before God, walking blameless in the commandments of the Lord. That doesn't mean they're perfect. It's the Old Testament way of saying these were faithful believers. These were people that loved God's law, that attempted to apply God's law, that when they fell short of that were were saved and, and made righteous and cleansed by the blood of the Messiah who was to come. And so it just means that they were faithful believers. Zechariah, he had this long service of faithfulness to God and his people. He's just an ordinary priest of a tribe of priests, you know, serving the Lord and his people in a very simple way. They're faithful, simple people, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in a really bleak time. This is about 6 BC. So it's about a year before Jesus was born. So spoiler, Jesus was not born at zero. There is no zero BC, but he was born about 5 BC. And so this is about a year before that. So we're like 6 BC, and it was a bleak, bleak time. They were under Roman occupation because of their sin. The nation was under Roman occupation. There were religious divisions. You think we have divisions now. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots. There were all these different divisions amongst the Jews during that time. So there's, there's occupation, there's division. Believe it or not, there's no ark in the temple So when the high priest would go in and offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, there was no ark in there. They had lost it hundreds of years before. That's pretty bleak, right? And the worst part of all is that God had not spoken to them in 400 years. So there's this 400-year period of silence between the prophet Malachi and what we see here. This is a bleak time, guys. And perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps you feel, you know, really beat down. Perhaps you're, you're tired of all the divisions. Perhaps you, you feel like you really haven't seen God work in your life in a, in a powerful way in a long time. If that's what you're feeling, then you're feeling a bit of where they were at. This was a bleak time for Zechariah and Elizabeth as a couple. If you look at verse 7, it says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. That was a devastating thing in that culture to be older people that had never had children. This is like kind of the very basics of any kind of prosperity or blessing in that time. And the barrenness of uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth really kind of mirrors the, the barrenness of Israel during that time. You know, it's a feeling of like, has God forgotten us? You know, is God ever going to bring that promised child? That's what Israel had been wondering. They've been told about this promised Messiah that was going to come, this promised child, and he just hadn't come in hundreds and hundreds of years, and God's been silent. And the same thing in Elizabeth and Zechariah's life. Like, they've been hoping for a child for all this time, and it kind of lost hope. Has God forgotten about us, is what they might have thought. So to be God's faithful people means to be a people who wait for him. Advent is a reminder that God's people wait for him. The, the word Advent means arrival. And when we do Advent, what we're remembering is Jesus' first coming, his first arrival, and his second arrival. In Advent, we remember how the Old Testament people waited a long time for Jesus to come. And we too are waiting for Jesus to make all things right again. But our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when the new heavens and new earth will come. But it's a time of waiting for school to get back. It's time for waiting in sports or travel or everything's like, oh, yeah, it'd be normal anytime soon. We're being taught to wait because I know there's a lot of frustration during this time is let's remember two guys that even though there might be all kinds of forces you don't agree with, God's sovereign, right? And God's sovereign over the fact that we're waiting. And what might God be teaching us in a year of waiting Guys, we're people that get everything immediately, right? 
we still get a lot of things immediately. But we're used to immediacy. We're not used to waiting for anything. And so I want you guys to ask tonight, what might God be teaching us in this time of waiting? Might he be kind of helping us to, to understand this kind of rich theme in scripture of waiting, of waiting on the Lord? Maybe he's teaching us to wait on him or to call out to him. You know, I was thinking about how much of our frustration and our waiting has made us pray and seek the Lord and, and ask him to act. Or are we just frustrated? You know, I think the Lord's teaching us something in this. And so God meets these people in their ordinary faithfulness. And I love this because, you know, God hasn't spoken in like 400 years at this point, And he speaks to an ordinary priest in his ordinary faithfulness. I mean, this guy, Zechariah, he didn't have a flashy role. He's from a whole tribe of priests. Twice a year, he would go up to Jerusalem and serve in that way. The rest of the year, he's just kind of doing normal priestly stuff at home. But God met him in his ordinary faithfulness. And that's something for us to learn. God meets us in our ordinary faithfulness. I mean, after this 400-year period of silence, he chooses to speak to this guy. Kind of a nobody, priest. It's really cool. Take a look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and he fell upon him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong drink or wine. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a way for his people. So the second thing we see here is that God's people faithfully wait. And then the second thing we see is God's people doubt. Take a look at this. God's people doubt. Look at verse 18. Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? <laughs> okay, so imagine this. He's, he's in there. He's offering his incense. He's not in the Holy of Holies. He's in the holy place. So he's not going in the inner part. And he's offering his incense. And an angel appears to him. Have you ever been in a situation where you kind of saw something move and you kind of wondered, like, what's that? You know, and you kind of look and like, oh, it was nothing. It was an animal or, oh, it was just something blown by the wind. He feels like there's something else in there. And it's a somebody. And it's an angel. Okay, so when he looks, he's not relieved. He's freaked out. He's afraid. And this angel tells him that his wife is going to bear a son. And his, his response is to doubt. He says, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel Gabriel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days that he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. I love this because so his response here, you know, after the angel tells him he's going to have a child is he goes, how will these things be? 
You know, how, how can I know this, right? How can I know this will happen? I love the angel's response. He's like, I'm Gabriel. He's like, how will I know how this is going to happen? It's like, does an angel speak to you regularly? You know, like, this is pretty straightforward, you know? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He's like, how often do you get angelic messengers coming to you? I think you could pretty much take this. But Zachariah doubts, guys. Zachariah doubts in a pretty spectacular way. I know we've all had times of doubt. But he had doubt while being spoken to by an angel, okay? This is something important to realize is that God's faithful people doubt. That may sound strange to you. God's faithful people doubt. That sounds odd, but that's what we see here. Zechariah's a faithful man, and he doubts. And we see this all through Scripture, that God's faithful people doubt. Think about the life of Abraham. He doubted. Think about the Psalms of David and his doubts. Think about the depression of Elijah or the woes of Job. God's faithful people doubt. Even John the Baptist, who this prophecy is about, that would be born to Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, he doubted, right? This man who is going to be this great you know, messenger of God, this man who Jesus said was the greatest man born of woman was John the Baptist, and he doubted. If you look at Luke 7, you'll see that John, he was in prison at that point. He had his whole life, he had pointed to Jesus, he had led people to the Lord, and at the end of his life, he's in prison, John the Baptist, and he knows he's going to die, and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And, and the question he sends is, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Imagine that, John the Baptist, at the very end of his ministry, and he's sending people to Jesus going, wait, are you actually the Messiah or not? Isn't that wild to think about? Like, this is John the Baptist. Guys, doubting is a common weakness of God's people. You know, we doubt primarily because, you know, the magnitude of God's promises, he's promised us such amazing things, and partly because of the misery of our problems. You got the magnitude of God's promise here, and you got the misery of our problems here, and this space between is a space of doubting. And I think it's just really important for you guys to know that. I think a lot of times we don't talk about doubt enough. And it's not to glorify doubt because certainly it's not being glorified in this text, right? The angel silences him. He's like, that's enough of that negativity. <laughs> We're going to just turn that larynx off for a little while because you're not going to do any good with it. It's not to glorify doubt, but it's very important that you know that believers are prone to doubt. And it's also really important for you to know that that doesn't affect your salvation. Because we're saved not by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith. We're not saved by how much we believe, but who we believe in. Does that make sense? This is a really important concept. Because sometimes we get this idea that we're, we are saved by faith. We're saved by putting our trust in Jesus. But sometimes we think we're saved by the level of our faith. That if you could just push that up 10 more percent, then you'd be saved. That's not the way it works. Even weak faith in a strong Savior will save you. Right? And you can have totally strong faith in a weak savior and won't save you. Jesus is the strength, not our faith. It's not about our faith being enough. It's about the one you believe in being enough. And he is. He's totally enough. I love this example about airplane. It was in the, the reading that I sent out for last Tuesday's discussion. But it's, it's this idea of an airplane. And so imagine there's an airplane going to the East Coast. And two people get on board. One guy's like completely confident in the pilot and the plane. Never has any doubts, kick back, easy, doesn't need a drink on the flight, nothing like that. He's just kind of like totally at peace. Second person gets on the flight and has intermittent terror, okay? Intermittently has great doubts about either the plane or the pilot or whatever, but has intermittent, you know, terror, okay? Doubts on the plane. Which one makes it to the East Coast? 
both of them, right? Because it doesn't have to do with the quality of the faith of the people on the plane. It has to do with the quality of the plane and the pilot. If you're in Christ, even if your faith is turbulent, even if you're in a place of doubts, you're safe in him. You're united to him. It's the quality of Christ, not the quality of our faith that saves us. And I just ask you tonight, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ? You might be at a place where you, you're like, yeah, I, I believe the gospel's true. I believe Jesus is who he said he is, but I don't feel like I have enough faith. Put the faith you have in him. He'll give you more later. We're saved by trusting in him, not by being some amazing level of faith. He'll give you more. Give him what you have. I love that plain analogy because it doesn't glorify doubt because there is something in our Christian culture right now that glorifies doubt, that somehow doubts, you know, this great thing. It's no fun to be in doubt. Okay. It's no fun to be Zachariah in this moment. It's no fun to be that guy on the plane. That's the whole time is going through intermittent terror. Our Christian lives are going to be a lot healthier and a lot better. The less we have doubts, but I want you to know that doubts are not something that will jeopardize your salvation. It's a reminder to us, guys, that when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Your salvation is secure in his promise, not in your performance. So God's people wait. God's people doubt. And thirdly, God's faithful people will receive the promise. God's faithful but imperfect doubting people will inherit the promise. Take a look at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have him called Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he'll be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father and inquired what he should be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed. And he spoke and blessed God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. There's kind of a funny part in here. I don't know if you caught it. but So Zechariah is struck mute, right? He can't speak, right? He can, he can hear, but he can't speak. And so in the beginning, he's making signs to people, which is what you'd expect for somebody who can't talk. Well, when they're kind of all in a, a ruffled up here and they're trying to figure out what the name should be, they start making signs to him, which is funny because he can hear. And I think this is something that's really common with us. We deal with people with disabilities and stuff. We can get totally confused on what the actual problem is. But they're making signs to him. I was just thinking, like, Zachariah's life must have been incredibly frustrating, you know, during this time when he's mute. I know I wouldn't want to be silent for that long of a period of time. And it's also funny, too, that somehow, like, all the neighbors have a say in the name. You know, they're like, it's going to be John. And they're like, well, that's, you don't have any Johns in your family. It's like, what is this, a community project? Like, everybody names the kid. It's really bizarre. So Zechariah and Elizabeth finally received the promise. And everyone's amazed. Like, who will this child be? Verse 66. But the true promised child is yet to come, right? He's not the true promised child. And as soon as Zechariah is able to speak again, he reminds them that the greatest promise isn't earthly prosperity, even a child, but it's Jesus. Take a look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, 
from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And, and what he's talking, who he's talking about there, he's not talking about John, right? Those things are not about John. They're, they're not about Zechariah, the baby Zechariah is holding. They're about Jesus. In fact, that whole structure of chapter one and two is meant to compare and contrast John and Jesus. That's why you have announcement of John, you know, announcement of Jesus, birth of John, birth of Jesus. They're intertwined like that to just show that Jesus is the better promised child. There's two promised children here. He is the better promised child. John had this amazing surprise birth to super old parents. Jesus is like, step aside. I'm going to be born of a virgin, right? John was a prophet of the most high, verse 76. Jesus is the son of the most high, verse 32. John was born to point the way. Jesus is the way. And Zechariah's message here is something that we all need to really deeply take in, which is that the greatest promise isn't earthly prosperity, any kind of earthly prosperity, even a child. The greatest promise is Jesus himself. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth received this earthly prosperity of a son in their old age. It's an amazing gift. But Zechariah knows that the greatest gift is a child yet to come. The greatest gift is, is the child that's going to be mentioned next. Because, guys, lots of couples remain childless. But anyone can have the promised child. Right? Anybody can have the promised child, Jesus. And... And I think something that we need to realize from this text is that our lives, all of our lives, are going to be filled with some sort of barrenness, right? Whether it's now or it's later, I'm fun at Christmas. All of our lives are going to be filled with some sort of barrenness. And what's amazing is, is that the beauty that's going to come in in the, in the world to come, that's going to fill that barrenness. And that's what Jesus does. He fills the barrenness. Nothing you seek in this life, even the amazing gift of a child, will compare to the gift of Jesus. And we read about that here in this verse 68 and on. Jesus is a gift of visitation. Take a look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is super cool. We're going to look at it next week, but Jesus literally is God become a man to visit his people, to be with us in our lives, to be present with us. We're going to look at that next week. And biblically, when God would visit his people, he wasn't just like, hey. He wasn't like, hi, I'm here to see you. He was there to act, right? And so secondly, Jesus is a gift of redemption. Verse 68 says to redeem his people. And that redemption, if you read this section, is multi-layered. A lot of times we think of redemption just as forgiveness of sins. But if you read this passage, a lot of it has to do with making the world right. They say that they want to be freed from fear of their enemies, and the captivity. God's going to do that through Jesus as well. It's not just about forgiveness of our individual sins, which is massively precious, but he's going to make the world right. I think that's something we need to tell people, okay? You might end up in a discussion this week of, man, the world's a mess. Maybe. Did you have one this week? Okay, there's, this is an, a gospel on-ramp, believe it or not. So somebody says, they might say to you, Man, everything's such a mess. Like, man, this world's such a mess. I wonder what's going to fix it. And you say, Jesus is going to fix it. Right? That's something that the gospel is about. Jesus fixing this world. He's going to make all things new. 
I was up in uh, San Francisco a couple years ago, and I took a cab because I didn't know about Uber really yet. I didn't feel comfortable doing it, so I had an old-fashioned cab driver. And um, we're going along, and this cab driver's like, he's not very positive. He's, like, talking about all the negative things going on. I wonder what he's doing this year, you know? Like, you know, like, hey, <laughs> let me show you how I can get real. But he was complaining about all the things going on, and I said, I said, well, you know, it's all going to get better, right? And he's like, well, better. I said, Jesus is going to make it better. And he goes, he better. And I said, he will, <laughs> you know, and that was a gospel unwrap, right? That Jesus is going to return and make all things new. That's a gospel unwrap you have available to you right now, today, anytime with anybody out there, right? So he's going to make all things new. He's going to make our world right again. And then he also makes us right, right? He makes us right with God. And then he's going to set our world right as well. And he's going to do it all based on his mercy. Take a look at verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. I love that, that God sets us right through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he does it because he is a God of mercy and he's making good on his promises, making good on covenant promises. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we're saved not by our own performance, but because of God's promise. Is God's a God that promised to send a Messiah and set things right. And if we believe in him, we receive that promise. It says in verse 72, it says the covenant in verse 73 calls it an oath. But that's the way Old Testament believers were saved. They were saved by believing in God's promise of a Messiah to come. And we're saved by believing in his promise of a Messiah who has come and will come again. And notice that these promises were made to people all throughout the Old Testament. In verse 69, it says promises to David. In verse 70, to the prophets. In verse 72, to our fathers. In verse 73, to Abraham. And there's this whole like unfolding of covenants that occurred all throughout the Old Testament period where God refined and told more and more of his promises through Jesus. It's God's promise that saves us, not our performance. And by the way, like that's why the name of our church is Covenant Grace. Okay, I don't know if you know. It's, covenant is like not a popular name for a church. Uh, covenant grace, that we are saved by grace from God's promise, that it's God's covenant grace, that it's his, his promise grace. It's, we're receiving good favor from God that we don't deserve based on his promise. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful. Somebody should call church that. So what's our role in closing? What's our role? If our role is not that we save ourselves through our own performance, what's our role? And our role is actually very similar to John's role. Our role is to point to the promised one. Our role is to point to the promised one. Take a look at what Zechariah says about his infant son in those last four verses, starting in 76. He says that you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and to the shadows of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Guys, important thing to realize about John is John was not the savior. Okay, John was not the savior. His role was just to point to the savior. You know, in the gospel of John, John says, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease, right? His role, of course, was unique in redemptive history. John was prophesied about even in, in Malachi. But guys, we have a role that's very similar. Our role is just to point to Jesus. 
one thing you guys might need to hear tonight is you are not the savior. You are not the solution to the world's problems. You are not the solution to your family's problems. You're not, not the solution to your neighbor's problems. You're not the solution to other people in this church's problems. Guys, Jesus is the Savior. You are not the Savior. Isn't that encouraging to hear? Isn't that a relief? Your role is to point to him. You know who the solution is, and our role is just to point to him. Your role, like John, is, is to, as long as your heart is beating and as long as your lungs are breathing, is to point to Jesus. You go before him. John was going before Jesus, and John went before Jesus' first coming. Here we are in this world before Jesus' second coming, right? We're here for a purpose, to point to Jesus. You give knowledge. In verse 77, it says to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. We have a knowledge of the gospel, and I know you guys are very used to it, and it's maybe become very, you know, I don't know, maybe boring to you. It's become something that's like, oh yeah, everybody knows the gospel. Like everybody knows about that. They don't though. I don't know if you guys realize that. Even a lot of people that have grown up in the church do not know the gospel. You know, you know the gospel. You have the knowledge of forgiveness of sins. You're the most important information you could possibly have. And giving this is sometimes easy. Let me give you one thing you could do just this Christmas season. If you have a family that you know that aren't believers, and they have kids, little kids, give them the Jesus Storybook Bible. Super simple. You give them the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's got awesome pictures in it, and it tells the gospel over and over again. It's not your typical, like, Bible storybook. It gives the gospel every single time you read a story, okay? And so what happens? Well, you've just snuck the gospel into a family. And so you have the parent. I know it sounds super sneaky, and it is. So at night, beautiful pictures, great story. At night, they're reading the gospel to their kids, and they're hearing the gospel. And their kid is very likely going to say, can we do that book again? And then they do it again. I got a, a really encouraging text by somebody who used to go to our church, but they, they moved away. They went down into San Diego. And she texted me because she did this. You know, we had talked about it. She did this. And this was a while back. And, um, and then the lady, the mother, that she sent this book into their house, this, this like really sneaky gospel bomb that they gave as a gift, she became very interested in the gospel from that. And then she was like, oh, what do we do next? And I said, well, see if you can do like Tim Keller's Encounters with Jesus, which is a great book about the gospel. And that lady's gotten since gotten saved. Her kid got baptized. She got baptized recently. I mean, that's amazing, right? And I've seen that happen again and again. So that's one thing you could do really simple. Jesus Storybook Bible, give it to families with kids. We've got these gospel Luke books for you. You make cookies, you give them this. You tell them the first two chapters are the Christmas story, just like Charlie Brown, you know? Tell them they could read that and tell them to keep reading that. And who knows? So I got a whole box of them here. Take as many as you want, like put them in with, with cookies and stuff like that. It can be very simple. And then what we need to do, guys, is just pray that God would give light. Because it's not your job to save people. It's not your job to cause them to be born again. That's not something you're even capable of, right? The Holy Spirit is... The counselor, the Holy Spirit is the advocate. The Holy Spirit is the one that is Jesus's lawyer, right? The one who actually wrestles with the heart of human beings. And so you just pray that the Lord would give them light. And I just want to read to you just a couple of verses right before we close. And it's this. This is what you want to pray for. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God 
whereby the sunrise visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. What we're praying for, guys, we're praying for God to turn on the lights. Right? So we give the knowledge and we pray that God would turn on the lights. It's a beautiful purpose that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to gather tonight. We thank you for just the, the nice weather. We thank you for the comforts that we have here together. We thank you so much for your word. And we just pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would just guide us to give the knowledge of salvation to those around us. We just pray, Lord, that you would give light to those we know. Even as we just heard that story of a, of a woman and her kids that were saved by a very simple act, we just pray you'd give us boldness and, and hope that your gospel message changes heart, that your spirit opens eyes. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. The Lord's Supper is a very Advent thing to do. Paul said that whenever we take it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Isn't that cool? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death. So we look back to his first coming until he returns. We're looking forward to his, his second coming. And the Lord's Supper is a time for us also, guys, to be fed. The Holy Spirit actually in some way feeds us on the real presence of Jesus as we take the Lord's Supper. And feeds us and strengthens us to keep on going as we wait until we see him face to face. The, the bread represents his broken body. The cup represents his shed blood. And it's a time for us to just meditate on what he's done, how much he loves us and how he is coming back for us. If that's your hope, if you're trusting in that covenant grace, not your own performance, but the promise of God, then we'd ask you to take that with us. Let's take the bread first. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the bread together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, once again, we're thankful. We love you. We trust you. We pray, Lord, that you continue to give us the joy you just gave us throughout this season, throughout this year, throughout the trials that are coming. And we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to persevere your people as you promised. And we look forward to seeing you. We know you're returning. And we just look forward to how you're going to make all things new. And we look forward to looking at you face to face and enjoying your presence. I'm thinking Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.